With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 74. It's titled, Capital Flows Where It Is Treated Best. Subtitle is, Why Is China Dumping U.S. Treasury Bonds? Before we get to the episode, we are approaching episode 75 of Money for the Rest of Us, and I want to thank you for listening, for supporting the show. But the reality is, I still don't have a good sense of who is listening and whether I'm creating the content you would most like to hear. And that's most helpful and inspiring to you. So I'm launching a survey that you can get on moneyfortherestofus.net. It'll take you three, four, less than five minutes, and it really will guide me to better understanding who's the audience for this podcast And what is it that you would like to hear? Or what other ways can I help and serve you? So you can get that at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you remember the Insider's Guide, you will have received a link to that in the weekly email. So several months ago, I think it was in March of this year, I was traveling with Lapril and my daughter, and we were going from L.A., going back to New Mexico to pick up our dog and then heading home. And so I, I'm the family travel agent. I booked a hotel in Las Cruces, New Mexico. It was a hotel with that has a Spanish-sounding name, U.S. Chain Hotel. I won't give you the name, and you'll see why after I, I share this experience. So I, I go to the front desk while my family starts taking some of the luggage out to get our rooms, and I check in. Or we start to check in, and, and she gives the, the receptionist there at the front desk, gives, gives us a choice. She says, we don't have any heat in this main building. The furnace doesn't work. So you can stay there in, in this main building, or you can go over across the street to our annex. And I decided, well, it was going to go down to sort of upper 40s Fahrenheit that night. We'll probably be fine. Okay, we'll take the room without the heat. So that she gives us a key, we go to the room, and, and lo and behold, the window is open and doesn't close tight. And this is one of the hotels with really, really long hallways. So it was, a, it was quite the hike to get to the room. So I hike back to the front desk and I say, do you have another room? We, I recognize you don't have any heat in your hotel, but we kind of need, if we're going to do that, we need a room that we can shut the window. So... She gave us a, another key. I walked back and to get the room. And by this point, we're, we, we kind of got our stuff, the bikes from off the car, and, and we're ready to go in. And, and we go in, and the room just, just absolutely smells horrid. And I thought, we, in the process, we, it, it really, really smoke smelling. In the process, we, we can't stay here. So walk back again to the front desk and say, this, this room just 
isn't going to work. We, we need another one. So she gives us a key to another room, and then we walk all the way back. And I don't know why we don't get any rooms kind of near the front desk, but these are always on the far side of the hotel. This time, the key didn't work. And I walk back, and she gives me a new key. And I go back, and it still doesn't work. And I go back. And finally, she comes with me to, to go back, encode a new key, and was able to open the room. Now, not a great experience for a hotel. I've stayed at hundreds of hotel rooms over the years, and, and I have a choice. Just like you have a choice of where to stay, you have a choice to where you're going to put your capital when you're traveling. I will probably not stay at this hotel chain again, simply because I didn't think it, the, the rooms were not well taken care of. The, the, certainly, how do you run a hotel without heat? And it didn't, it was okay. I mean, it got kind of cold, but it was fine. But here's the point. The title of this episode is Capital Flows to Where It is Treated Best. Hundreds of years ago, when you wanted to move your capital, you had to physically move it. You pack up, packed up your gold bars or your bags of cash or whatever. It was, it was very, very difficult to move capital. Now, most money is digitized. We can move our investment with with a few clicks of the mouse keyboard. And so where does capital go? Well, capital will go to where it, when we say treat it best, I mean treat it into countries where the, the capital's not going to be, your investments aren't going to be somehow taken by the government. In other words, you have some legal rights to get your investment out of whatever particular country you invest in. So you have that free movement of capital into and out of a country. You have legal, some type of legal standing in that country in terms of the legal system to protect your investments. And you're going to go to where you could get an attractive rate of return. And so capital is always moving. These digits are moving all over the place. And and the nexus for these cross-border transactions is the currency exchange markets. That's where you you switch from capital in one currency to the capital in the other. I recently got an email last week from Emily, who is a listener. She's based in Canada, and she asked about the U.S. dollar compared to the Canadian dollar, and that the Canadian dollar is is 75%, essentially 75 or 25% less expensive or cheaper than U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is much stronger than the Canadian dollar right now. And she asked, you know, why is that the case? Well, right now, capital is treated better in the U.S. Both countries have good legal systems. You're able to freely move your capital in and out. But where there's a difference is in the rate of return. The, the Canada five-year bond is yielding 0.8%. U.S. five-year bonds yielding twice as much, about 1.5%. Canadian 10-year bonds yielding 1.5%, and the U.S. Is treasury, 10-year treasury is yielding 2.2%. So you get a higher rate of return in the U.S. At the same time, the, the Canadian Central Bank is indicating it might further reduce interest rates while the Federal Reserve is thinking about increasing rates and economic growth or anticipated economic growth as indicated by Purchasing manager indices or PMI data, the U.S. has, has economy as measured by or at least as expected through PMI is is doing much better 
than the Canadian economy because Canada is much more tied to energy and is, is getting significantly hurt by the drop in oil prices. So capital is, is treated better because of the more attractive return in the U.S. And as a result, the Canadian dollar has weakened relative to the U.S. dollar. So exchange rates float relative to each other, at least in most countries. Some countries peg their exchange rate to another currency. So some, some foreign countries peg their currency to the dollar. China, for example, pegs its currency to the dollar, but within a range is a band in which China allows its currency to float relative to the U.S. dollar. And I'll circle back to China in a minute. But so, you know, what is it that impacts the, these currency, the exchange rates? One is the attractiveness in terms of the rate of return in a given country, typically as demonstrated by interest rates. Countries with higher interest rates and inflation under control will have a stronger currency than countries with lower interest rates. The other thing that drives currency exchange rates is, is just commerce, private businesses needing a, a to exchange currency because they have sold goods in a given country and want to repatriate that capital back into their, to their own. And certainly speculators that, that want to take advantage of changes or anticipated exchange, changes in exchange rates. And finally, investors, as we mentioned earlier, that want to invest in a given country. In order to do that, they need to exchange their home currency into the currency of the country that they want to invest in their stock bonds, or real estate market. Now, recently, there's been a lot of coverage in the financial press about how the Chinese government is dumping some of its U.S. Treasury bonds, its Treasury securities. China owns upwards of $1.5 trillion in U.S. government debt, and that comprises about 40% of China's $3.5 trillion of foreign currency reserves. Now, that raises some questions. Why is China selling its debt? Will that not cause U.S. interest rates to skyrocket? And what exactly are foreign currency reserves? Well, when we talk about currencies back in the late 1990s, so 1998, there was an Asian financial crisis that was essentially exacerbated by very weak currencies. In other words, speculators sense that currencies of a number of the emerging developing markets in Asia, Korea, for example, Thailand, that their currency was going to continue to weaken. And so these speculators sold millions and millions and millions uh, of dollars worth of these currencies. Now, a weak currency is not good for a country because if the government, households, and businesses have borrowed money in a currency other than the home currency, as their home currency weakens, then their debt payments in terms of principal and interest goes much higher. And so it becomes very difficult and it could lead to defaults. Many, many government defaults were because they borrowed money in a foreign currency, in the U.S. dollar, and their currency weakened. The other risk to a weakening currency is the fact that import costs go up and that could lead to inflation. So if your currency has weakened significantly and you import a lot of oil, then suddenly energy costs are much higher and that can lead to inflation, or at least a temporary jump in inflation in a country. And then the third that 
currency weakens because or, or sort of the downside is again that this hot money, these speculators that capital flows to where it can get the best return. And hot capital, if it believes it can profit, hedge funds can profit from a currency that is weakening and they can exacerbate that trend, play the momentum, then they'll do so. What Asian countries learned from that experience, because many did default on their foreign-denominated debt because their currencies just plummeted, is they needed a arsenal of foreign currency, a war chest to protect the currency, to stabilize it. And those arsenals are called foreign currency reserves. What do countries do with those? Well, they keep these, these foreign currency reserves to essentially when their currency begins weakening and they believe that it's undervalued relative to the other currencies that is being hit by speculators, then they can take some of those dollars and buy some of their own currency or participate in the currency exchange market and be a buyer of the currency to offset all the selling that's, occur- that's occurring and stabilize the currency. How to do countries get these foreign currency reserves? Well, one way you do it is, is when you, during a period when your currency is strong, you actually sell some of your home currency and buy some of the foreign currency, and that builds up your reserve. But the primary way to do it is through trade. In other words, through running a trade surplus with other nations. If you sell more, export more, if you're a country and you export more to the U.S., for example, then you import, then what that gives you is a pile of dollars. Because on the other side of a trade deficit, you always have the trade of the goods and services, but you also have the capital on the other side. And what do I mean? What do I mean that by? Well, just let's let's look at China. China ran a trade deficit with the US in 2014 of $343 billion. So there was $343 billion worth of goods sent to the U.S. more than valued more than the goods that came into China from the U.S. So there was a trade surplus that China ran. And what did they get for that? They had $343 billion of capital that potentially could be repatriated back into China. So that's the capital flow. So you have the goods going in one direction, you have the capital flowing in the other direction. In 2015 through July, China ran a trade deficit of $202 billion. And, and so, again, this is a pile of dollars that Chinese businesses have. What do they do with them? So over a year and a half, $500 billion of U.S. dollars that China businesses now own. Well, they could keep it in the U.S. and invest it and could invest it in U.S. Treasury bonds, could invest it in stocks, real estate, or they could, because they want to repatriate that capital, take it and sell it in the currency exchange market. But in doing so, if, they, if all that money is exchanged in the currency exchange market, that could push up the value of the Chinese yuan relative to the dollar, and that potentially could hurt exports in the future. What China has done is its central bank has been willing to buy all those dollars from the Chinese businesses. And to create the money to do that, it, or to, to produce the yuan to do that, they essentially printed it. Now, again, this is all digitized, so they created the digital money to collect or, or to trade 
for those U.S. dollars. And that is why China has, that's basically how they build up their currency reserves, by running this trade surplus and the central bank taking all these dollars and exchanging them for yuan. Now, the risk to China doing this is, is all that, that yuan is flowing into the, the Chinese market and potentially sparking inflation. What does China do with all those U.S. dollars? Well, a great deal of them get invested in the U.S. Treasury market. They buy government debt. For China, an, an investment in U.S. government debt, that's an asset. For the U.S., it's a liability. But it's directly linked to the trade surplus that China runs with the U.S. If America doesn't want China to own its government bonds, then Americans need to stop buying so much stuff from China. If we ran an even trade balance with China, then China would not have large stockpiles of U.S. dollars that need to be deployed and invested. So there's a direct link there. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com david to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, what happened? You know, why is China now selling some of those U.S. Treasury bonds? In China, the Chinese market or the Chinese economy is slowing, as we've talked about in earlier episodes. And as a result, capital wants to leave China. Investors want to take some of their capital and go to other countries where it's treated better. 
treated better and since can get a higher expected return. And Chinese citizens, wealthy Chinese citizens want to move their capital out of China where they believe it is more secure, that it can't be confiscated by the government for whatever reason. What that does then is that puts pressure on the Chinese yuan to weaken. If there's flows that's coming out of the country that wants to be converted into dollars, then this is an opportunity for China to use some of those currency reserves to stabilize the currency. They allowed the currency, it has this band, to depreciate 2%, but they don't want it to depreciate more than that. And clearly there, there is pressure for it to depreciate more than that. And as a result, China needed dollars or they needed to convert some of their treasury holdings into dollars so that they could then take those dollars and buy yuan in the currency exchange market and stabilize it. Here's the thing, though. What did those investors and those Chinese citizens that now have converted their yuan into U.S. dollars, what did they do with those dollars? Well, many of them turned around and bought U.S. Treasury bonds, bought U.S. debt. Others might have taken those dollars and bought some real estate in the U.S., and the, those individuals that sold them the real estate could then take those dollars and probably bought U.S. Treasuries. In other words, the whole thing was very, very circular, and there wasn't an overall change in ownership. And in one way, we can sort of determine that is interest rates in the U.S., barely budged during the month of August. So, yeah, there, there, was, there was all this hysteria about the, US, or the Chinese government selling its U.S. Treasury bonds. But the reality is they're not going to dump all the U.S. Treasuries. They did it solely to stabilize their currency because there was money coming out of the country, out of China, into the U.S., and and. So China sold some treasuries in order to raise the dollars to stabilize to, so they could exchange that money for the yuans. Those new holders of the dollars, more than likely, much of it flowed back in to the government bond market. Why do I not think China is going to dump all the U.S. Treasury holdings or even a significant amount of them? Because they're still collecting hundreds of billions of dollars uh, of currency from the U.S. each year because they're still running a huge trade surplus. Only when things balance out will they potentially be able to diversify their their foreign currency reserves. But as long as they run a trade surplus, then there will be capital flow from the U.S. back in the China of U.S. dollars. China will want to invest and earn at least some interest on that, so they invested in U.S. Treasury bonds. Last week, my son Brett and I took a overnight backpacking trip into Yellowstone, and we, we showed up at the ranger's office. When you when you want to stay at an overnight camp or a backcountry camp, you have to go to the ranger's office to get a permit. They show you a bear video, ensure you've got rope to tie your food up on the pole. And the route we wanted to take, all the campgrounds were taken. And so it took us about 15 minutes working with the ranger to come up with a campground that we could go. It was 10 miles in. It was going to be along the Snake River. So we went to the parking lot. We, we got our backpacks on. We all got set. We started to follow the trail. 
We went about 50 yards and we got to the the bank of the river. And, and we saw the red flag on the other side. And I, we looked at the map again and I didn't think at all there was we would have to ford the river. But we had to do it within the first two minutes of the hike. We had a dilemma. I didn't bring anything to ford the river with. I had my boots and my socks and my son had his shoes and that was it. So our choice was, here's our dilemma. We could have a painful crossing across the river and keep our shoes dry by taking off our socks and shoes and then balancing with our packs and in my case, my hiking poles and my boots to get across on the river. And the rocks were hard and the water was cold even in August or September. The, uh, the alternative was to take a painless crossing and wear the boots and, and have wet shoes for the rest of the hike. That was the choice. On the way there, I chose to take my shoes off. And literally, I balanced and I almost fell down several times because it was really, really painful and really, really cold. But for the next 10 miles hike, I was glad because my feet were dry. But then as we walked back, I kept thinking, I got to do this different because <laughs> it hurt. And so when we crossed, after, so we hiked 10 miles in, we stayed overnight, had a great time, hiked 10 miles back the next day. And, and then I got to the bank of the river and said, this time I want my feet pain-free. I'll go with a wet boot. So I left the boots on and I crossed the river and by then we were almost to the car. The same thing occurs with countries when it comes to their exchange rate in the monetary systems. I faced a, a dilemma. Countries face what's known as a monetary trilemma. Sometimes it's known as the impossible trinity. What it is, is, is countries have a choice. China has a choice. They can, you can either have, you can have two of the following three things. So this is the choice. You can have a stable exchange rate. You can have an independent monetary policy where you set interest rates, or you can have a free flow of capital going in and out of the country in terms of the trade. But you can't have all three. China has chosen to have a relatively stable exchange rate, and they want the independents to set their monetary policy. But the offset of that is they allow a free flow of capital in and out that they still have to deal with somehow. And, And what I mean by that? Well, because they've decided to peg their exchange rate to the dollar, sometimes the currency is stronger or weaker than it might be, and when it's weaker than it might be, but they're, they're propping it up, then that makes their exports much more attractive, and, and as a result, they run a huge trade surplus, and then there's all this capital that wants to flow back into the country, and so China chooses to print money in order to, to build up the currency reserve and give it to those, those businesses that then those Chinese businesses, they give them the dollar. Let me read you a quote. This is from a Financial Times article. It says, China, quote, China has learned how it is no more immune to the trilemma of monetary policy than any other country. Policymakers may desire free movement of capital, control over domestic interest rates, and a stable currency, but they cannot have all three. 
capital will always seek out the best return, driving either interest or exchange rates to wherever they are needed for balance. There is pressure right now for China to to weaken its currency because of the way the flow of capital. Capital is trying to leave the country right now, and and China is, is having to draw down its currency reserves in order to do that. Here's a follow-up quote. For years, the floods of capital streaming towards China obscured the trilemma as the People's Bank of China absorbed the flow through the accumulation of ever more dollar reserves. But since mid-2014, the flows have inverted, causing reserves to fall by almost $300 billion. This may have led to the, the People's Bank of China's decision to let the renminbi, or the yuan, to slide 2% last month. Should funds continue to leave China, pressure on their currency will only build, adding a powerful extra reason for more speculative capital to join the rush. Capital, hot capital, if they can sense weakness in a currency, they will attract so that they can take advantage of it. So that is the trilemma. And, and that's why China ultimately reduced some of its currency reserve to protect its currency. It will probably have to depreciate more. But we'll see. Where in the world is capital treated best right now? In the U.S. And that's why the dollar has strengthened so significantly relative to other major currencies, the yen, the euro, the U.S. has, has higher interest rates. And, and as a result, on a relative basis, relative to European rates, what, relative to Japan, they are the money is moving back into the U.S. Emerging market currencies are also weakening because capital is worried about the impact of the China slowdown and the drop in commodity prices. So you have f- capital flowing back into the U.S., strengthening the currency. Capital flows where it is treated best, and in a world where there's there's legal protection and a free flow of capital, then the deciding factor is where can you get the most attractive rate of return, primarily in terms of bond yields. I had a held the webcast last week that I talked about how to boost your investment performance. Had a great turnout for that. Unfortunately, I forgot to hit the record button, which was a little bit embarrassing. So I re-recorded it for a limited time. If you'd like to listen to that that webcast on four ways to boost your return and, and figuring out what what how do you determine a reasonable rate of return for your portfolio, you can do that. Go to the bottom of the homepage at moneyfortherestofus.net, and there's a link there, and you can get access to that that webcast. So also. If you want to get show notes for this episode, you can get that at moneyfortherestofus.net and also sign up for that insider's guide. And I'll email those show notes to you weekly. Again, please take the listener survey. I would love your feedback and input so I make sure I create Money for the Rest of the episode that you would like to listen to and perhaps other content and other webcasts that you might like to listen to that I'm addressing the things in the way I can be most helpful. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided any type of investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.